Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Great to have you with us. This is week seven, believe it or not, of this series we've been doing, Jesus Unfiltered. As every week, we're following Jesus through the gospel of Mark. And we're just kind of taking the next story and looking at the next story. And the whole point is just to be able to see ourselves in the story and to ask, how does Jesus want to intersect our lives today uh, as we see this story and the way that Jesus works in this story? So today we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. That's where we are. That's where we're going to be spending some time today. Uh, when I was in college, I spent a summer working in a print factory in Moline, Illinois. My college roommate lived there, so I went, we lived uh, there, and we worked for an entire summer trying to save up and earn some extra money for college. And working in a print factory, you do these like repetitive jobs for hours and hours and hours all day. And one of the jobs I did while I was in that print factory is I worked the shrink wrapper, the industrial shrink wrapper. Anybody? Shrink wrapper? Have you ever done this? Okay, just, okay, a couple of you. So this is literally the, the kind of machine that I was on that looked almost exactly like the machine that I worked with and used. And so basically the way it works is it's just this repeat, repetitive motion. What I would do is I would stick my arm between these two sheets of plastic and I would move whatever it was we were shrink wrapping to be shipped into the middle. And then you would take your arm out and you would pull this lever and bring that frame down and it would burn and seal the edges of the plastic. And then it would go into like that, kind of oven thing right there where it would cook it and shrink wrap it down so it could be shipped. And so literally all day long for hours, I'm sitting there at this machine. All I'm doing is just the same motion. This is it right here. This is what I would do for hours. This is the motion. This is the movement. And what happens when you sit there and, and do the same repetitive motion hour after hour is your mind tends to wander, especially if you are ADD and medicated, which I am. And... Um, and so it was it, like I would sit there for hours and I would, what happens is you kind of disengage from what you're doing, the moment you're in. And so one day working the shrink wrapper after a few hours, I unfortunately forgot a step. And unfortunately this step that I forgot was I forgot to take my arm out from in between the two sheets of plastic before I pulled that lever down that seals and burns the edges away. So I'm just kind of, you know, dun, 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 doing my, this motion and all of a sudden there's just pain. I mean, searing agony kind of pain. And I'm yelling and screaming and I burned my arm and I burned the plastic actually to my arm. Now, uh, there are certain injuries you can sustain while working in a factory that get you almost like hero status. You know what I'm saying? Like if you cut off the end of a finger, that's kind of cool. If you burn yourself putting out a fire to save everyone else's life, that is awesome. You become like a local hero. Women show you sympathy. I mean, it's awesome. When you shrink wrap your own arm <laughs> and people have to come over and like unpeel your arm as if it was a package of hot dogs, that kind of injury does not get you that kind of hero status, let me assure you. It gets you a totally different kind of status with nicknames and things like that to follow. And the reason I tell you that is because I think that's a picture of a lot of our lives. We are creatures of routine. We get stuck in our habits. We get stuck in our routines, this kind of repetitive life that we live in. For many of us, we wake up the same time every day. And the first thing we do, I actually just read a, uh, recently a study that said that 90% of people, the first thing they do when they wake up is they grab their cell phone now. They grab their smartphone. And I'm guessing we probably look at the same apps in the same order. 
Maybe for you, it's you have that first cup of coffee and you fix it the exact same way every time. You take the same route to work or to school every single day. And what happens is with the routines we live in in life, we can kind of, our hearts can kind of disengage from God and from how God wants to be involved in our daily lives, for how he wants to intersect our lives until pain enters our life. Until suddenly there's this searing pain that comes in and interrupts our lives and awakens us to our need for Jesus. And oftentimes that's what ends up happening to us. And so uh, the story we're going to look at today involves two different characters. And both of these characters, what they have in common is pain has entered their lives and it's interrupted their lives. It's interrupted their routine and it's awakened them to their need for Jesus. I don't know, maybe there are some of you here this morning, you're going through right now a season like that. There's pain that's entered your life and you don't know why it's there. You're not sure why God has allowed it, but it's sort of woken you up. It's sort of made you realize your need for healing, your need for God to be at work in your life. That's where these two characters are. So we're going to jump in. This is Mark 5, starting in verse 21 with these two characters. It begins this way. It says, Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake. Keep in mind, last week he's in the region of the Gerasenes, so he's going back to Capernaum, to his hometown, where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. So this very first character that we meet here in the story is this guy by the name of Jairus. We're told his name and we're told his title. He is the synagogue leader. Now the reason Mark tells us exactly who he is, his name and his title, is because Jairus was a very important person in Capernaum. The synagogue was the center of, of Jewish life. It was the center of a community like a small town like Capernaum in the first century. Not only was it the center of all religious life that happened, but it was also the center of all education. It's where your kids would have been sent to go to school. It was also the center of any sort of legal matter, any sort of uh, law being decided. The synagogue leader functioned as almost like a judge in the community deciding on legal matters. So Jairus would have been well-respected, he would have been wealthy by that community's standards, and he would have been well-known. He, he would have had a place and a position, but something has intersected his life. Pain has come into his life, and it's awoken him. It's shaken him to his core, brought him out of his comfortable life, his comfortable routine. His daughter is sick. His little girl is dying, and if something doesn't happen quickly, she's not going to make it. And he realizes his need for Jesus. And so he is going and asking Jesus to step into this situation. Let's keep going. It says, Jesus went with him and all the people followed, crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors. And over the years, she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. 
Keep that in your mind. Remember, that's her thinking as she approaches Jesus. If I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. Immediately, the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. So the second character that we interact with here in the story is this nameless woman. We'll just call her nameless woman because in the story, literally, she is a nameless woman. We're never given her name. She doesn't have a title or a position. What we know about this woman is that Old Testament law in Leviticus 15 would have said that a woman with her particular condition would have been considered unclean. What that means is that she was not welcome in the synagogue. For 12 years, she's not been welcome in the synagogue. The synagogue is the center of the community. It's where everything happens and you're not allowed to go in because of this painful, so she's suffering, she's in pain, and yet she's also isolated. Not only does Leviticus 15 say that somebody like her who was suffering the way she was couldn't get, be in the synagogue, it also said that anyone who touched her also was not allowed to go into the synagogue. So for 12 years, nobody's touched her. And this condition she's suffering with has become public. It's humiliating. People know about it. And ironically, who in this story would have been responsible for making sure she stayed out of the synagogue? Jairus, that's right, the synagogue leader. And not only that, it would have been his job to make sure her condition was known so that no one else touched her so then they wouldn't be allowed in the synagogue either. See, you, you have these two characters who couldn't be any more different from each other. Jairus is, has a name, he has a title, he's a synagogue leader, and his daughter who is sick and dying is important enough to summon Jesus to come to his house. Again, remember, Jesus by this point is like a celebrity. He's like a local superhero. And then you have this woman, no name, no position, no title, probably no kids because of the conditions she's been suffering with for 12 years. And she has this thought, if I just sneak up behind Jesus and touch the edge of his cloak, maybe I'll be healed. See, the question that's at play here as you think about these two characters and the way they're juxtapositioned is, is this question, what qualifies you for a miracle? What is it? What exactly qualifies you for a healing? What qualifies you for a miracle? Is it your position? Is it your social standing? Is it your actions or your beliefs, believing the right things? Is it your money? Is it your wealth? Is it some action that you would take, some, uh, some way that you would step forward? Or maybe, maybe it's your pain. My pain is worse than their pain. God, why don't you do something in my life? If Jesus was an ER doctor, he'd be sued for malpractice, right? You don't stop and heal the woman with this condition when you've got a little girl who's dying. So what, what exactly qualifies us for a miracle? And don't pretend like you haven't asked this question. Because here's the thing I know about every single one of us in this room. Every one of us has known someone who's been sick, who's been given a diagnosis, and God intervened in that situation through whatever methods he chose to intervene, and there they survived it. And we also have all known people who with no explanation didn't get that same experience. So why? What qualifies a person for a miracle? What is it? That's the question at play here. Let's keep going. Verse 30. 
Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? They're really like, Jesus, everybody's touching you. What are you talking about? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. So there's, there's this huge moment where Jesus recognizes that he feels power go out from him. He knows something that happened. And so he turns around and like he, he stops the whole parade that's going to Jairus's house for his sick daughter. And he's insisting, who did this? Who touched me? Who, was, who experienced the healing? And can you imagine being this woman in this moment? Don't, you just want to hide. Like, hasn't she been humiliated enough? Hasn't she you know, been embarrassed enough by her condition and by all that's happened? Why does Jesus insist on calling her out and making sure there, she goes public with her healing, goes public with what she experienced? I think the reason has to do with something that she believed and Jesus wanted to make sure he corrected for everybody who was there to hear. Again, remember the thoughts she had when she goes to Jesus, remember what it was? It's if I can just touch the edge of his robe, then I'll be healed. What she believes is almost like this superstitious belief. There's, there's a passage in the Old Testament um, from the, in the prophet Micah. And what it says is that when the, when the Messiah comes, he will rise with healing in his wings. That's what the prophecy says. He'll rise with healing in his wings. The word for wings in the original language is also the same word that was used to describe the tassels that would be on the edge of a rabbi's cloak that he would wear. And so she has this superstitious belief. It's like, oh, the formula is you touch the tassel. He rises with healing in, in his wings, in his tassels. And so he's, he must be at her, she believed he was the Messiah. If I just touch his tassel, if I get the right amount of change in the vending machine, if I get the right formula, then I'll be healed. And when she's healed, Jesus calls her out, makes her public because he wants her to understand something. He says, no, it was your faith that made you well. It wasn't that you got the formula correct. It's your faith is what qualified you. Your faith is what made you well. And, and that's the point. Faith is what qualifies a person for a miracle. It's our faith. It's not any ability of ourselves to get it right, to get all the, the perfect nuances correct. It's our faith in the person of Jesus that qualifies for him to move and work in our lives and bring about a healing, to bring, bring about a miraculous event in our lives. And that's what he wants this woman to understand. But the story's not over, not even close. It keeps going. While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. Oh yeah, that's right, that, that's still happening. They told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. This is, this is an unbelievable moment. Uh, you think about Jairus in this moment. He's just re received, in my opinion, the worst news you can possibly receive. I've been a pastor a long time. I've been with people in a lot of different environments where, where they were grieving. In, in my opinion, I think the worst grief that anybody I've ever watched anybody experience is the loss of a child. And, and that's what he's just been given this news of. Your daughter is dead. It's too late. 
Don't bother the teacher anymore. Don't bother Jesus anymore. It's too late. She's already gone. And Jesus has the gall in this moment to say, don't be afraid, just have faith. Faith is what qualifies you for a miracle. Remember that. Faith is what qualifies you. Don't, don't be afraid, just have faith. But what's amazing about this moment is Jesus doesn't explain what he's about to do. He doesn't offer Jairus any kind of hope at all. Like, hey man, I know you're freaking out right now. Hang on a second. Here's what I'm gonna do. Here's what's gonna happen. Like in today's world, if, if Jesus was a doctor, like he would have had Jairus like sign a form for treatment with all this sort of liability legal language to make sure he understood exactly what was about to happen. Jesus doesn't do any of that. It's like, you don't get to know. So just don't, don't be afraid. Just have faith. Just have faith. He doesn't explain how he's gonna work in this situation. He doesn't explain what he's about to do. Don't be afraid, just have faith. We've talked about this so many times at Frontline, but the, the language of faith is always yes before how. The lang that's the language of faith. That's how we approach with faith. It's yes before how. It's yes, God, I will have faith in you. I will trust you even though I don't understand how you're going to work in, in my life. See, our problem is we try to understand God. We think we have to understand God in order for him to move in our lives, but you don't have to understand in order to obey. You understanding is not necessary in the equation for you to be able to obey him. You can obey even if you don't understand. You can trust him and put your faith in him even if you don't understand what he's doing, where this is going, and how he's gonna be involved in it. That's what he's asking Jairus to do in this moment. Maybe you're in the midst of a, of a time of life right now and you've got all these questions. Why them and not me? Why am I going through this? God, why are you allowing this? And pain has intersected your life. It's woken you up and made you realize your need. And you're trying your best to understand why God is at work here. His words to Jairus are, don't be afraid, just have faith. Say yes, even when you don't know the how. So here's how Jesus unfolds this next moment. It says, when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, she's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave and he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha Kaum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. They were amazed, or they were overwhelmed and totally amazed. So this unbelievable, miraculous moment happens. There, this little girl is raised back to life. She's completely and totally healed. But Jesus' statement, she's not dead, she's only asleep. There's so many things in this passage that, that just point toward who Jesus really is and what he really came to do. There's a detail that Mark gives us that we almost miss, but it's really significant to the story. Uh, how, many, how old was the little girl? Do you remember? 12. She's 12 years old. That's right. How many years had the woman been suffering from the bleeding? 12. That's right. So Mark specifically tells us that the same amount of years this little girl has been alive is the same amount of time this woman has been suffering from this bleeding, 12 years. 
We, we've said this before. Whenever you are reading the Gospels, if it appears that the Gospel writer is telling you a number, and, it does, and you didn't really need to know it, like, what, the girl could have been 13 or 14. Why do we need to know she was 12? There's a sign there. The gospel writers were obsessed with numbers, and for them, numbers didn't just equal numerically what they signified, but they also represented symbolically something deeper. In the Bible, the number 12 represents Israel, God's chosen people who were called and set apart to bring the blessing, ultimately, of the gospel to the entire world. There were 12 sons of Jacob that became the 12 tribes of Israel, Right? Jesus comes along and Jesus calls 12 disciples to begin this new movement, this new Israel. So what's happening here, Mark wants us to understand, this, is, this has to do with this new Israel, this new 12, this new movement of God in the world. And in this new Israel, what qualifies you to be a part of it is not your birthright. It's not your, your perfect you know, adherence to the law your ability to perform in a perfect way, what qualifies you is your faith in the person of Jesus. That's what qualifies you to be a part of this new Israel. See, these healings point to something much bigger. Here's what I mean by that. You have to keep in mind as you're reading these stories and these healings that every single person in the Gospels who ever experienced a healing from Jesus went on to die. Where is this little girl today? This little girl, he rose from the grave. Where is she today? She's dead. She grew up, got old, and died, I guess, a second time. Where, the woman who was healed from this bleeding, where is she today? Yeah, she's dead. She grew up, got old, went through menopause, and died. Right? So what's, what's the point of these stories, right? Are we literally supposed to read these stories and go, oh, awesome, That's, uh, God can heal us of our physical uh, ailments and problems so that we can eventually die anyway. Like, what, what is the point of this? Is that the, big, the best thing we're supposed to get out of this? The reason Mark is including the number 12, the reason that we're supposed to look at these healing stories is we're supposed to see the bigger reason why Jesus came. We're supposed to see ourselves in this little girl. We're supposed to see ourselves in this woman we're supposed to understand that in faith, when we put our faith in the person of Jesus, when Jesus has us by the hand, even death itself is transformed into nothing more than sleep. That's what he's saying. She's not dead. She's just asleep. Why did he say that? Because he was in the room. That's why. And he was calling it what it was. Death is, can never be anything more than just sleep when Jesus has a hold of us. This woman... She pushes her way through the crowd and she touches Jesus. She has faith in who he is. And he, Jesus feels power go out of him. And this moment, that, that moment transfigures and sort of points toward what was about to happen with the cross. Jesus on the cross lost more than just power. He lost his entire life so that we could be healed eternally. So that we could be given new life in him. That's what we're supposed to see when we look at these stories so the whole point, if you hear nothing else I say today, hear this. The goal of healing is actually not a cured body, but a heart full of faith in Jesus. What does it mean to be healed? What does it mean to be made whole? It means to have your faith totally put into the person of Jesus Christ and totally your life totally surrendered to him. That's the goal of healing. We're not healed just so we can not be sick anymore. It's awesome when God does that. It's awesome when that happens. But when that happens, it's a testimony. It's, it's pointing toward 
the ultimate reason he came. Our physical bodies are a tent. That's what one of the New Testament writers calls it. It's a tent. It's not a permanent dwelling. It's just a temporary thing. It keeps us here for a little while. What Jesus came to do was to build an eternal home. So your pain and your healing both are meant to point toward the bigger reality of having faith in the person of Jesus. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, we can't please God. We can't come to him. Is there any place in your life right now that is a yes before how moment? Jesus might be looking you in the eye and saying, don't be afraid, just have faith. Is there anywhere in life where you need that right now? How you respond when you find yourself in a moment where pain has intersected your life matters. Because really, when do we have the opportunity to express our faith? (laughs) It's in the moments of life where we have a need and we become aware of it. Pain wakes us up to our reality and we suddenly have this desire, this need for something bigger than ourselves. Is Jesus doing that in your life? Is he allowing something like that in your life? It's not for your, it's not to hurt you. It's not to tear you down. It's not to break you. It's to build faith in you is what it is. The thing that pleases God, the thing that he values more than anything else is our faith. I think about my own life Uh, Five years ago in 2015, I was diagnosed with cancer and it came out of the blue for me. I I was actually, the way I was told that I had cancer was through a phone call from a nurse. I was actually here at church. I was in my office upstairs and got this phone call. I could see on my phone, it was the, the hospital. And so I answered it. I had been through a series of tests and a biopsy the week before. And all every test, they kept saying, you know, this is just a precautionary measure. And I truly believed it was precautionary. I thought, man, I'm healthy. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm feeling good. There's no way I'm, I'm sick. I was just fully expecting this phone call to be telling me, yeah, you're good. We're, you know, your, your time of going through all these tests is over. And instead, like I remember here, the first time I heard the word lymphoma on the phone, it was like this brick, you know, that just like came out of the phone and settled around my neck like this heavy weight. And instantly I had all these questions. You know, what does this mean? Uh, Can this be treated? Am I going to die? Is this because I ate so much Taco Bell in college? (laughs) Seriously, that was actually one of my questions. (laughs) I don't know why my mind went there, but it did. Grade E beef every year for four years, that must have been bad for you. There's no way that can be good for you. And so I, I'm asking these questions and this nurse could answer absolutely none of my questions, either because she didn't know or because she wasn't allowed to answer the questions. And so uh, basically the whole purpose of her call was to inform me that I had the diagnosis and then immediately to set me up with treatment. So the whole point of the phone call was, okay, we've, we need to get this on your calendar and make sure you're getting in. So I sit there after hearing this news and I'm looking at my calendar and making all these appointments with all these doctors and all this stuff to begin treatment. 
and I hang up the phone. And when I hang up, hung up the phone, you have to understand in this moment, I had my suit on, my black suit on. Now, there is only uh, two reasons why I would ever wear a suit. You know me. Like I, there, there's only two reasons, only two occasions why I would ever wear a suit. The reason I was wearing a suit that day was because in 20 minutes from hanging up that phone call, I was supposed to walk down the stairs out of my office, walk into a room in this church and conduct a funeral. There is a family here at Frontline who I love dearly, who had lost their mother, and I was supposed to walk into this room and do her funeral. And I have this memory, I literally remember sitting down in my office chair, I had my cell phone in one hand, I, I got my car keys out of my pocket in my other hand, I remember just sitting there in the chair thinking to myself, I wonder if I, if I go down the stairs, I sneak out the back door, I wonder how far away I could get. Or if, if I could just get in my car and just drive, that was my impulse. Because I didn't want to be here. I didn't want to walk into a funeral and offer hope in the face of death. I, could, I didn't have it in me to do that in that moment. There was nothing in me that, that possibly could have said anything or offered anything in that moment that would have been helpful. So I literally remember just sitting there and like literally like I, I just, I'm just going to run away. I'm going to get in my car. I'm just going to drive. Somebody else can figure out this funeral. I don't even know. And ultimately, though, that you know, the wrestling, I mean, there's no way I could do that, that to this family. I love them so much. And so ultimately what I ended up doing is I put my car keys back in my pocket and I said kind of like a yes before how prayer. It was just, okay, God, yes, I'll just go down. I'll be faithful. I'll do this funeral. Have no idea what you're going to do, how you're going to do this. I'll just set all that aside and I'll just go. So I came downstairs. I walked into the funeral. I hardly said two words to the family or to anybody. I stood up. Got, went right up, opened my Bible, and I started the funeral the same way I start every funeral. I start every funeral by reading the words of Psalm 23. And so the first words that I said publicly after receiving my diagnosis were these words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Yes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a place for me at the table in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And then I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I cannot explain to you what happened in that moment. All I know is this like tidal wave of peace and God's comfort just came over me in that moment. And I realized if I had run away, I had missed, I was going to miss out on this moment because I realized in that moment, I wasn't talking to the people in that room at that funeral. I was talking to myself. Those words were for me in that moment. And as I read them, I, I didn't know how things were gonna turn out. It's not like I knew. And, and by the way, five years later, what I can tell you is I've had many people in this church pray over me and, um, and uh, just ask for healing for me in my life. And five years later, I can tell you that as of my last scans, what they're saying is there's no further progression of the cancer and even the lymph nodes in my body that were affected appear to be shrinking. So praise God for that. But yeah. 
I go back every six months and there's another round of scans and everything. They, they, they won't ever declare me cancer-free because of the particular cancer that I have. I didn't know that there was gonna be that good prognosis in that moment. All I knew was I had cancer and all I knew in that moment was that the hope of the gospel is real. It's real. Sometimes we need pain in our lives to wake us up and remind us how real the hope of Jesus actually is. Because what I knew in that moment, even as I was reading those words of Psalm 23, is that yes, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death because Jesus faced death. And therefore all death can ever be for me is just a shadow. Yeah, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want because Jesus went without. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake because Jesus was led down the path toward the cross. Do you get this? He took our place. Isaiah 53 says that by his wounds, we are healed. And that's the point of faith. No matter whether cancer defines someday whether I, how I die or not, we're all gonna die of something to, someday. Cancer will never, ever, ever define the way that I live because my life isn't just about this moment in this world right now. That's the point of healing. Healing is to point us toward the real healing. So the question this morning is this, do you need healing? Is there anywhere in your life where pain has intersected your life? Your job isn't to fix it. Your job isn't to understand it. Your job isn't to figure it out. Your job is to approach Jesus in faith. That's your job. Do you need healing? I mean, is there physical healing that you need? Is, is it mental health related healing that you need? A commitment that we made uh, when we started this series was we said, we don't wanna just tell these stories of Jesus. We wanna actually do them. We wanna actually interact with them. We wanna see ourselves in these stories and we wanna in faith, just act on them. And so in preparation for this, um, this morning, we asked a few people who we just trust. I, these are people who I just am so grateful for and believe in, and they have faith in Jesus. And uh, they, they were willing to be able to stand here in the room this morning and pray over anybody who would just wanna come forward and say, I need healing in my life. I need healing. Man, I've had people in this church do that for me. Some of these people, first service and second service have done that for me over the last few years. And so folks, would you just stand? Um, they're gonna be kind of standing right here in the, in the aisleways. In a minute, we're gonna sing a song and I wanna invite you as we sing, maybe there's some of you in this room who need healing. So as those are, are who are gonna be praying, if you guys would stand right here and uh, just invisible. Yeah, if you could stand right over here, right in the aisle way there, Nils, so everybody's just sort of visible. Here's what I'm gonna ask you to do as we sing, you come forward, come down, just like that woman who pressed her way through the crowd to touch the edge of Jesus' coat. It wasn't getting the, the prayer right. It wasn't touching the tassels that healed her. It was her faith in Jesus. Here's what I'd ask you to do if you're coming forward. Don't come forward because you have faith in me. Don't come forward because you have faith in anybody standing up here praying. Come forward because you have faith in him. I'd love to offer a prayer and then uh, we're gonna sing and you come. Lord Jesus, this morning we just come before you as your children. I love in that story that you call the woman daughter. Daughter, your faith has healed you. She wasn't your daughter biologically. 
but she was your daughter because of her faith in you. She's a child of God. So God, I pray for all the sons and the daughters in this room. God, some of us need healing. Some of us need you to intersect our lives. There's pain that has interrupted and put our lives completely on hold and it's interfering with the life you called us to live. We don't believe that that's the condition you want us to stay in, that you have work for us to do. And so this morning, Jesus, we say yes before how. This morning, we believe you can heal. We believe in your power to set people free. And we ask this morning that you would do it. As we come boldly before you in faith, we just ask God as we pray that you would touch, that you would heal, and that you would restore. Not just for this moment, God, but so that our faith can be built for all of eternity. We ask this in the risen and resurrected and powerful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen.